Remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also the sermon text from the first seven verses of John 14. Give your ear to God's gospel. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help as we meditate on the gospel, on Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray that you would soften our hearts so that we can submit ourselves to your word, to what you have to say, so that we can believe more deeply in the gospel and so that we can live it out in our lives more faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue our trek through John's Gospel, verse by verse. And last week was part one in this two-part series of Truth for Troubled Souls. This is a standalone, so if you weren't here last week, you'll, you won't be left behind. You won't be lost, but I, I would encourage you to go back, if you weren't here, to listen to last week's sermon to complement what's being said today here. Jesus has recently told his disciples that his soul was troubled. It was troubled because of what he was about to do, undergo. Back in John 12, 27, Jesus said to the apostles, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now, here in John 14, in our passage today, our Lord's troubled heart still abides. The reason for his troubled spirit has not gone away In fact, it has drawn closer. And yet, here in John 14, we find Jesus, the good shepherd, comforting the troubled hearts of his followers. Jesus is the one who is about to go to the cross, but instead of turning inward to nurture his own troubled soul, primarily, he turns to the eleven, to the eleven disciples, and teaches them truths that will heal their hearts. 
as soon as they believe in them, as soon as they embrace them. So it's important to note here that Jesus has the most cause for having a troubled heart, and yet we find him here comforting his disciples in their troubled hearts. Now, a troubled heart is an ancient and ubiquitous disease, we might call it. It afflicts everyone at various times. Jesus will, st- will say straightforwardly in John 16, in this world you will have troubles. There is much to be troubled about in this fallen world. That's why one of the promises given to us in the book of Revelation uh, in the, about the world to come is that there will be no sadness there, no troubled hearts, no tears, no physical or emotional pain. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That's what lies ahead for the faithful. But right now we live right in the middle of the former things. And they have not yet passed away. Like the original disciples, we often find ourselves dealing with that disease of a troubled heart. And in this passage, Jesus prescribes the remedy for this malady. In short, rather than wallowing in our pain, we turn our hearts to Jesus. We turn our eyes to Him and we put our trust in Him. Believe in God Believe also in me, Jesus says in verse 1. Here's how Jesus puts it in John 16, 33. I'll read the whole verse this time. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So to cure the trouble that you will encounter in this world is found in me. Jesus says, you have not overcome the world, not in your own strength, not on your own, but Jesus has, and in him, and in him alone, we have what Paul calls the peace that transcends all understanding, which guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, the verse goes on to say. Troubled hearts and minds only find peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in God, trust also in me, Jesus says. Now in verse 2, Jesus provides more truths to be trusted. He says that he's not just going away. He's going to his father's spacious house. Where, as we saw last week when we covered these first three verses, there's room for every follower <clears throat> excuse me, of Jesus. There's room for everyone. His purpose in taking this journey back to heaven is to prepare a place for each person that belongs to him, that the Father has given to him. Jesus prepared a place for every believer, not when he got back to heaven, but on his way Back to heaven. Jesus prepared a place for you by going to the cross on your behalf on his way back to the Father. His death, burial, 
resurrection and ascension into heaven prepared a place for you in God's presence, in God's house, which is where you will be, which is where you will spend eternity when you die, after you die. The final truth that we looked at last week in verse 3 is that Jesus will come back to get his own. Now, many will enter their eternal abode upon death. Most of us will, but many Christians will be alive when Jesus returns. And at that point, they will enter their everlasting dwelling place for the first time. The most significant quality of your heavenly home is not that it's mansion-like. We saw last week that mansions is not actually the best translation in verse 2 there. Jesus is not inviting us to long for extravagant estates of the rich and famous. Christ's focus is not on the pleasures of earth. Now, if you look at verse 3 carefully, you'll see that the most important quality of your eternal abode is that it is in the presence of God. Nothing else about this dwelling place matters in comparison to the knowledge that God will be there and you will be with God. Jesus says at the end of verse 3, So where I am, there you may be also. Your forever home is not one that you've bought or that you will buy or that you've built or will build. Your forever home is where Jesus is, where I am is. And that's really the only thing that matters in the grand scheme of things. For the believer, heaven without God would be hell. As one 19th century poet put it, heaven itself without thee, dark as night, would be. Are you looking forward to owning a mansion and living in a place where all of earth's pleasures will be flowing and unfettered? Or are you looking forward to being where your Lord and God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is? In Psalm 1611, David prays, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, all the joy, all the fullness of joy, everything that joy entails is in God's presence. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And in another place, David sings, Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and, and to inquire in His temple. Is that your longing? Is that where your hope lies? The blessed hope is that you will get to enjoy God's presence forever. In verse 4, Jesus assures His disciples that they actually know where He's going. And they know how to get there. And where I go, you know. And the way, 
you know. But Thomas is characteristically incredulous. He objects in verse 5. Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? Thomas asks the question, but surely others were asking the same question. Now, it's worth remembering that this same Thomas said back in chapter 11 that he was prepared to die with Jesus. In John eleven sixteen, Thomas said to the other apostles, well, let us, let's all go to Jerusalem then that we may die with him. He, he saw the writing on the wall. And he said, let's just, uh, let's just go with it. Thomas appears to be a, a blunt man who faces fear and confusion head on. He's not the guy who's going to put on a pious face and nod wisely as if he understands what he does not. So we know when Thomas doubts... You know when he thinks he's going to die, because he says it. We know when he's confused. So he says here, in effect, look, Jesus, you tell us that we know where you're going and that we know how to get there. But I'm telling you that we're lost on both accounts. So Jesus is patient. He's sensitive to the slowness and the misunderstanding of Thomas and the other ten In the next verse, in verse 6, he tells them both where he's going and how they can get there. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, that's where he's going, that's where they're going, except through me. And that's how to get there. Now this triple claim in the first sentence of verse 6 is staggering. The the definite article before each noun says much. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He's not a religious alternative. He's not a way or a truth or a life among other viable options. And then the second sentence drives it home. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven. No one enters into God's house except through me. There are no exceptions to this. This is perhaps the most exclusive verse in Scripture, or at least the most exclusive thing Jesus said. Very clear terms. But if they're true, if what Jesus says is true, and as Christians we know it is, they shouldn't be offensive words because they're what we need most as fallen human beings. Rather than being offended by the exclusivity of Christ's words, we should receive them with joy and thanksgiving that God has given to us the way and the truth, and the life. He's provided it for us. He's revealed it to us. He's opened our eyes to it. To, to it. Now, Jesus doesn't pick these three nouns randomly. You know, because they sound religious or 
theological, the way, the truth, the life. He identifies himself as these three things because these are what fallen mankind needs. Or you could say these are the things that mankind lost in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they had all three of these privileges, benefits, blessings. First, they enjoyed perfect communion with God. Second, they knew the truth that flowed from God. He spoke to them and initially they believed Him. And third, they possessed spiritual life. However, when they sinned, they lost all of these privileges. They, they threw away for themselves and all of their progeny all three of these possessions. Instead of enjoying communion with God, they experienced separation from Him. And the emptiness that came with that. Instead of knowing the truth, they fell into falsehood and confusion willfully. Instead of knowing the truth, they fell into, excuse me, instead of possessing spiritual life, they died spiritually. And they began to know physical death as well. Now, God had promised them, He had warned them better that when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And die they did. Because of Adam's sin, this is mankind's condition. By nature, from conception, we are alienated from God, blind to the truth, and condemned to eternal death. We need a way back to God, the way back to God. We need to see and believe the truth about God. And we need new life breathed into us. The glory of Christ's claim here in verse 6 is that it provides a divine solution to our threefold problem. Instead of estrangement from God, in Jesus there's a way back, the way back to God. Instead of darkness in our understanding, in Jesus there's the truth that illumines our minds and our hearts and sets us free. Instead of spiritual death, in Jesus there's the life, eternal life, resurrection life. So let's look at each of these three in turn. First, Jesus is the way. Now, a way is a path between two points. If I want to get to, from point A to point B, I got to know the way. The way is how I get from point A to point B. Now, the way that Jesus is talking about is the path from two points, the path from mankind's total ruin in sin to the Father's eternal house in heaven. So 
those are the two points. Point A is mankind's total ruin and sin. Point B, the Father's eternal house in heaven. And our total ruin and sin has two components. There are two obstacles. Sin has ruined us in two ways, and we must be delivered from both aspects of sin's ruin. And these two facets of our sin problem are the guilt of sin and the grip of sin. We could say the punishment or penalty of sin and the power of sin. We need a way out of sin's guilt and we need a way, the way out of sin's grip. The guilt of our sin condemns us before God. As I said, by nature, at conception, we are children of God's wrath because we are guilty of being sinful, of being sinners. Every one of us is a descendant of Adam. And at conception, we inherit his sin and guilt and, and later, we go on to add our own sins to the mix, showing that we agree that we're with Adam. Unless God saves us. So, what must be done about this problem, this guilt problem? What's the way out? God could not simply have decided to set aside our sins, to sweep them under the rug, without satisfying his just wrath that our sins provoked and our sins deserve. There was only one way for God to remove our sins and to satisfy his judgment, his anger, his wrath against our sins. He had to send his own son into the world as a man so that he, the son, became one of us, so that he became one with us, taking on our flesh, taking on our humanity, making him eligible to take upon himself the sins of humanity, the sins of mankind. So Jesus became our substitute He died in our place. He absorbed God's wrath for us. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's him becoming the way. The death of Christ on the cross removes the guilt, the penalty of our sin forever. So because Christ died in your place. God has blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. He has blotted out your sins like mist, Isaiah 44, 22. Because Christ died in your stead, God has removed all your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, verse 12. Because Christ died for you, God has cast all your sins behind his back. Isaiah 38, 17. Because Christ bore your sins in his body on the tree, he has trodden your iniquities underfoot and he has cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 
19. Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. But God doesn't only forgive your sin, and he in some sense forgets your sin. In Hebrews 10.17, God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Your sins have been forgiven and forgotten in Jesus. If you want to escape your sin and the guilt that goes with it, then trust and obey and love and follow and know Jesus. He is the way, the only way out of sin's guilt. Jesus is also the way out of sin's grip. Or power. Sin's guilt has to do with the punishment or the penalty. Sin's grip has to do with sin's power in your life. And both of these are our concern. We're not just concerned about the first one, our justification. We're concerned about our sanctification as well. We don't just seek to be forgiven and justified before God. We also desire to live a life that is pleasing to God. That produces good works. The fruit of the Spirit. And how do we achieve this? Once we're saved, do we do it in our own strength? We've been given this autonomous strength somehow to then do the rest. On our own? No, of course not. We do it in Jesus, by his power, and through the knowledge of our position in him. Through embracing the identity that Jesus gives us in him. Victory over sin's power can only come when we are in Christ and fully aware of what Christ has done in freeing us from sin's punishment. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, after he talks about our justification in Christ, we've, been, we've died with him, we've been buried with him, we've been raised with him. And then about halfway, almost halfway through the chapter, he says, therefore reckon yourself, consider yourself dead to sin. That's, that's what follows justification. Our identity gives us a certain power over sin. That's how God works in us. We must know who, have, who we have become in Jesus if we are to be free from sin's grip. I want to read you a medium-sized quote from Charles Spurgeon. Quote, Whenever I feel that I have sinned and I desire to overcome that sin for the future, the devil at the same time comes to me and whispers, how can you be a pardoned person and accepted with God while you sin in this way? If I listen to this, I drop into despondency. And if I continued in that state, I should fall into despair and commit sin more frequently than before. But God's grace comes in and says to my soul, 
Thou hast sinned, but did not Jesus come to save sinners? Thou art not saved because thou art righteous. For Christ died for the ungodly. And my faith says, though I have sinned, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And though I am guilty, yet by grace I am saved and I am a child of God. And what then? Why, then the tears begin to flow and I say, how could I ever sin against my God who is so good to me? Now I will overcome that sin. And I get strong to fight with sin through the conviction that I am God's child. End quote. By this kind of trust in Jesus, God delivers his children from the guilt and the grip of sin. This is the kind of faith that takes you from total ruin and sin to the Father's heavenly home. Doubts and fears drive you further into sin because they obscure your vision of God. They keep you from seeing God and what He has done for you in Jesus. Faith in God Faith in His Son, Jesus, leads to salvation from sin, and then it leads to holiness. It conquers sin because it places you in Jesus who has conquered sin for you. Jesus, is, Jesus alone is the way from sin's ruin to God's house. Second, Jesus is the truth. He's especially the truth about God the Father. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him. And you've seen him. And then down in verse 9, which we'll talk about next time, Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the truth about the Father. He's the truth about God, which includes all other truth. Now, notice Jesus didn't say, I've come to tell you the truth about God the Father, although he does do that. But he says here, I am the truth. He and the Father are one, and if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. Remember back in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him, explained Him. Jesus is the truth because He embodies everything that His Father is about. He embodies the supreme revelation of God. He declares God. He makes God known. He says and does only what the Father gives him to say and do. As we saw back in John 5 and 8, I believe. 
Jesus is God's self-disclosure. Or as Paul puts it in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. He reveals the truth about God. Through Jesus, we see who our God is. We see through Jesus that our God is a personal God who is holy and merciful and humble. We see in Jesus that our God is full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Jesus reveals that God is love. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus reveals the truth about who God is because he is the truth and because he is God. Third and finally, Jesus is the life. Jesus is the emancipator from spiritual death for everyone who trusts in him. Arthur Pink writes, The whole Bible bears solemn witness to the fact that the natural man is spiritually lifeless. He walks according to the course of this world. He has no love for the things of God. The fear of God is not upon him, nor has he any concern for God's glory. Self is the center and the circumference of his existence. He is alive to the things of the world, but is dead to heavenly things. The one who is outside of Christ exists, but he has no spiritual life. When the prodigal son returned from the far country, the father said, this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. End quote. The life that Jesus gives is eternal life. It's life that begins in this world because God gives it to us now and we experience it in part now and that extends eternally into the world to come where we will experience it in full. Back in John 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. In his first letter, John reaffirms this several times. 1 John 2, 25, And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. 1 John 5, 11, And this is that testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 13 of chapter 5, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. But you see, there's more to it. The reason Jesus can give eternal life is that he is eternal life. When he gives eternal life, he gives himself He is eternal life in the flesh. Listen to 1 John 5, 20 as one example. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. The second verse of 1 John says the same kind of thing. Today's text, and therefore today's sermon, strikes at the heart of mankind's most urgent problems. In Adam, we alienated ourselves from God. We rejected the truth about God, and we died spiritually immediately. In Jesus, we've been restored to God. We've been set free by the truth, and we've been made alive forever. This is the gospel. And the grace of the gospel is the antidote to a troubled heart. The secret to overcoming the trouble that this world brings is resting in Christ. Falling back into the bosom of Christ as John himself did during the last Passover meal in the upper room. The remedy for a troubled heart is putting to death the ways in which you still try to create your own way, your own truth, your own meaningful life apart from Christ. And we're still prone to do do this even after we've been saved. Life is going to continue to fall in on us. Troubles are going to come. Job 5 verse 7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Trials are part of life in this world. Disappointment and darkness are inevitable. Your experiences of emotional and physical pain are not unique to you. They're not unique to our age, to our generation. But Christ speaks into the darkness saying, don't let your heart be troubled. Why? He's overcome the world and we're in him. How? Trust in God. Trust also in me. And this exhortation at the end of verse 1, this command at the end of verse 1, is a command to believe in the substance of of verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the truth about the Father. Jesus is the everlasting life with the Father. Let's pray and give God thanks. We do thank you for this good news. This wonderful news 
that sets our heart free from sin and that calms our troubled hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. That you would help us to not occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us, but instead to calm and quiet our souls like a weaned child with its mother because we are resting in your son, Jesus, trusting in him as we trust in you, Father, and walking in his spirit, not by sight, but by the faith you've given to us. Hear our gratitude and our request in Jesus. Amen.